uh, it's a musical version of the, uh, there's a movie, a 1961 movie called The Brain That Wouldn't Die. We, we turned it into a 3D extravaganza with music. But uh, the way we do it is most of the show is done in 2D until the, the big 3D finale. Hello and welcome to Arts In, the podcast produced by Creative Vanillas and affectionately known as AI. I'm Barbara St. Clair, your host, and with me today is Tom Civic. And Tom, you are a composer and a conductor. You just premiered a new opera. Tell me a little bit about the opera. Well, um, it's, a, it's a chamber opera, Dr. Dillegaff's Baboon. It's a one hour in duration. Uh, the performance at the Palladium was a, a concert reading, uh, not a fully realized production with sets, costumes, etc. And uh, a, basically a stage reading. Um, it, it's a good way to develop a new show. Um, this was the first audience to see Dr. Dillegaff's Baboon. It's a relatively cost-effective way to preview things in front of an audience and get a sense of what works and what might need modification. Now, the story of the opera is about a psychiatrist who has to choose between his affection for a stuffed baboon that he has in his office and his affection for a woman that he recently met. Is that correct? Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of operas are, uh, um, are, are a, a love triangle, you know, um, and uh, this is, uh, you know, kind of a, an absurdist uh, twist on the love triangle. Um, it's not a stuffed baboon. It's more a sculpture or a statue of a baboon, and uh, a quite menacing one. You know, a uh, uh, in my imagination, or, or what I would assume would be that the inner office of a psychiatrist's um, office would be um, a place of refuge. You know, and Dr. Dillegaff has this larger-than-life, menacing-looking baboon statue. Uh, dominating the space. Uh, he, he, he does have affection for it um, and uh, sings to it and confers with it. Um, you know, if anyone has a, a problem, you know, a mental problem or a psychological problem in this show, um, he's pretty much the top of the list, but he's the one giving the advice to everyone. Oh, my sweet monarchy. I've never known anyone like you. You dropped into my life, much like a bolt out of the blue. Literally, having just met for the very first time this morning. get the idea of using a psychiatrist's office for your opera and also creating, obviously, what's attention. There's this frightening sculpture in there. So did that come from a dream you had or <laughs> an article you read? Where, where does an idea like that generate? My wife and I um, went to um, an upscale antique gallery in Chicago, uh, really just a window shop. We had some time to kill. And uh, the first thing that we saw when we walked inside there um, was this huge marble statue of, of an ape of some kind. Um, I mean, this thing was probably six to eight feet tall, made out of white marble. I mean, it had to weigh a couple of tons, you know, 
And we went out thinking, I mean, who would buy this? I mean, and where would you put it? Uh, and that, that was the genesis of the moment of, uh, of the idea for the show. So now as we're talking, it sounds kind of ominous and dramatic, but your opera is actually funny. Thank you. Uh, it is intended to be funny. Um, most of the things I write, you know, have an element of humor to them. I mean, it's it's ridiculous, you know, that he would have this in his office, uh, and that he would that it would be a difficult decision for him to choose uh, between an inanimate object and uh, a woman who cares for him. Um, Dr. Dillagaff has he's a new receptionist. She transforms gradually through the show uh, to to be, look more and more ape like um, in each um, successive scene that she appears in. Um, she grows a light coat of downy fur on her legs and arms, which becomes thicker, and, um, and then her ears become a little more pronounced in an ape-like way, and uh, her brow is a little bit more pronounced, and finally she uh, appears with a tail. Now, whether that is actually happening, you know, or whether this is just what Dr. Dillagaff sees in his mind, you know, as he, he grows more fond of her, um, I, I leave that to the audience. Or could it be that haughty Simeone? Maybe it's just my overactive hypothalamus. I've always been a fool for women with skin undefiled by at your biography, you have a tremendous background in musical theater and in yes. music composition, but this is your first opera. It is actually my second opera, but it's the first one to ever reach the stage. The other one is still in a drawer <laughs> that I wrote 20 years ago. But um, um, yes, I, I worked as a, uh, a music director and conductor in uh, musical theater uh, in Chicago uh, for 20 to 25 years. Um, I my highest profile job was working, um, uh, conducting Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat with Donny Osmond uh, for three years. I was on tour with that show. Um, I also was Bob Fosse's music director for a national tour of dancing. And, uh, you know, my experiences in musical theater have formed my, um, my thoughts on what opera um, could be. Um, you know, in terms of the length, I, you know, I didn't want to write a three-hour uh, extravaganza. Um, I feel like uh, an hour is about as long as anyone wants to sit. It's also economically uh, written as a cast of four, um, one set, um, you know, minimal co uh, costume uh, requirements. Are, you know, all of these things are part of what I learned in 20 years of musical theater. Um, no one can afford to produce um, a show with a cast of 25. Um, the Hunchback of Notre Dame, which was um, one of the last big shows I wrote, I had a cast of 25, and uh, um, no one does it anymore. What if he's able to recuperate? Operator, give me Hudson 32568. Hello? Is he dead yet? I told you just a minute ago. He's not dead yet. Let's talk about that a little more, because obviously as a composer, as an artist, you're making a decision. 
what form am I going to use to express my story? And you have this great background in musical theater. You've worked in, in, in a popular aspect of musical theater. I mean, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, Bob Fosse, those are all very popular, very crowd-pleasing kinds of artistic endeavors. What was driving you to do it as an opera instead of maybe a, an easier path of musical theater? Well, you know, opera is a, I think is a purer form um, conceptually. Uh, in musical theater, you have to accept the fact that people will talk like normal people and then suddenly launch into song. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's acceptable. I mean, we know what the form is, you know. But there's like two different realities going on there. And uh, whereas opera being all sung, um, it just seems to be, you know, uh, more concise, you know, more, uh, it doesn't have that baggage of, you know, I'm suddenly, now I'm dancing and singing. Um, everything is sung, and therefore um, it's, it's one reality. Um, my thoughts were that, uh, that I could bring something to opera that might be different. Not just the plot. I mean, obviously this is whack, you know. Um, but in terms of a sung dialogue and, and jokes uh, that might um, normally exist in dialogue uh, to be sung, um, I, I thought this might be just something that would be different and fresh to audiences. You know, there's a, it's actually an old joke. The psychiatrist is in his office and, and the receptionist comes in and says, Doctor, there's a, a man waiting out in the, in the waiting room who thinks he's invisible. And the, the psychiatrist says, well, does he have an appointment? And the receptionist says, no. And he says, well, then tell him I can't see him. So that's one of the little scenettes in the show. And it's all sung. What other opera does that? I don't know. That was kind of my thought, that uh, it would be funny to have this kind of thing going on um, in the context of opera, you know, which is um, very high class and uh, uh, sometimes um, very artistic. Well, using people's association with a type of music and then playing with that is something you've done in another of, of your compositions. You took some jokes and put them in Latin. I, one of my uh, approaches to, to composition, you know, that it goes through my career really is to try to combine two genres together. So um, in the case of uh, the Latin songs you just mentioned, um, whenever I hear uh, a piece that's sung in Latin, um, it, it's very serious sounding, you know, and any song you hear in Latin, it sounds profound. So it, my thought was um, it would, might be interesting to translate some uh, contemporary phrases into Latin and have them be sung. Um, and, um, and then don't tell the audience what it's about until after the song is over. So for instance, Deo gratias. And even if you don't speak Latin, you could probably ascertain that Deo means God and gratias means thank you. So thank God, you know, you could kind of put that together. And, and it sounds very religious and serious. So, you know, you're, you're going along for the ride. Yes, this is thank God, you know. Well, the actual translation to the entire text, it actually means thank God it's Friday. Um, one of the other movements, it's a very short piece. And what it, what it translates to is uh, double tall, iced mocha, no whip. Um, but again, it sounds very, you know, very monk-like, you know, and they're singing very seriously, you know, and, and at the end they go, yum, you know, <laughs> and uh, so that's my sense of humor.
So another work that I wanted to ask about, The Brain That Wouldn't Die in 3D. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, in 3D, that's uh, that seems to be the big thing nowadays. You know, you go to see movies in 3D, and of course, all plays are in 3D, aren't they? And it's a, uh, it's a musical version of the, uh, there's a movie, a 1961 movie called The Brain That Wouldn't Die, uh, and it wasn't actually in 3D, but... Uh, um, we, we turned it into a 3D extravaganza with music. But uh, the way we do it is most of the show is done in 2D until the, the big 3D finale. So all the set pieces are flat, you know, cardboard cutouts, and uh, their costumes are uh, like color forms. Uh, uh, we make, try to make it look as flat as possible. Um, and uh, then in the, the finale, um, we see all those same set pieces, only they're real furniture now, you know. Uh, and it's in 3D, you know. Uh, they make a big deal uh, before that scene, you know, to put a, we, they give, uh, we give the audience uh, 2D glasses. Uh, they only have one eye hole, um, you know, because you don't have any depth perception when you can only see out of one eye, you know. So uh, I don't really think anybody would wear those <laughs> through the whole show. It's mostly just a joke, you know. But uh, the audience is instructed to take off their 2D glasses before the 3D finale. I'll do it! Talk to me a little bit about the Great Bardo. Well, um, the Great Bardo um, is is a pun on bard, and um, Bardo is also that uh, like limbo uh, in in Tibetan. Uh, the story of that is uh, an actor um, is performing Shakespeare on stage, and there's a sword fight, um, and for whatever reason, there's a real sword, and he gets stabbed, and he dies on stage, um, and. Um, even before he collapses to the floor, the reality changes and these people come out and they sing the show must go on and they, they pick him up and they make him do a kick line. He's bleeding profusely, you know, as he's dying and, um, and they sing the show must go on, must go on. And uh, uh, by the end of the number, he collapses um, and uh, scene two, he wakes up and he's basically in hell or in limbo um, where uh, Bilius P. Bardo um, has produced, uh, he's written, rewritten all the Shakespearean classics um, to update them and make them more accessible to modern day audiences. So there are car chases and, and women in bikinis and, you know, uh, the little cast is forced to perform this bastardized Shakespeare forever. Because the does, show must go on. Yeah, that does sound like hell a little bit. Um, and they finally decide that if they can stop the show, that they might be able to get out. So... Uh, they devise a way to stop the show and uh, redeem themselves, but uh, it's cyclical and it ends the way it begins. And you know, um, there's really no escape. But uh, uh, Jose Ferrer played uh, the great Bardo uh, at the Lincoln Center uh, in a in a reading uh, sponsored by the uh, New Musical Theater Network um, back in the uh, the late eighties. <laughs> And the Andrews sisters are involved in this somehow, yes? Well, again, you know, he's rewritten the, the Shakespearean classics to, uh, you know, update them and make them more modern and, and fun. And so uh, in Billius P. Bardo's version of Romeo and Juliet, 
um, the Andrews sisters come out and sing the prologue. The prologue basically tells the whole story before you actually watch the play. Um, so in Bardo's prologue, um, the Andrews sisters sing the, the whole story of Romeo and Juliet um, in, you know, in jazzy uh, Andrews sisters style. She lies down in bed. They think that she's dead. She's sleeping instead. You've never seen such a commotion. Romeo and Juliet. It's the greatest little love story. So you, one trend I'm seeing through at least the work that we've discussed is you have a very interesting. I'm not going to call it twisted, but very interesting <laughs> sense of humor. You you like to play with things that maybe are expectations and kind of shake people up a little, but you use humor to do it. Well, again, all of these things kind of mix a couple of genres together, you know. Um, even the brain that wouldn't die, the music, uh, the music itself is very sci-fi underscoring sounding, you know, but with a 60s beat, you know. Uh, and, um, you know, the great Bardo is, is mixing Shakespeare with the Andrews sisters and, and, and other uh, more modern uh, genres. So I do like that. Uh, my, first, my first success, really, as a composer, I was in college at Northern Illinois University, and uh, I auditioned to be a student of Russell Peck. Russell Peck is a, uh, an American composer who uh, really wrote rock and roll for, music, for orchestras. Um, and uh, one of his big pieces was called Jack and Jill on Bunker Hill. This was back in 1975 or 76, you know, at the Bicentennial. And it was a children's uh, concert, you know, and it, it gave some background, some historical background, you know, uh, but mostly it was uh, rock and roll with a narrator. And uh, so I auditioned to be a student, and I played him all these serious pieces that I had written. Um, and then just as a lark, I played him uh, a fugue that I had written using the theme from Eleanor Rigby from the Beatles. Um, and uh, a fugue is a Baroque compositional form. It's very complex. Uh, it involves writing uh, for f three or four voices um, that each has their own independent melody, yet they all fit together. And they're all based on the subject of the theme. And in this case, the subject of the theme was you know, the theme from Eleanor Rigby. Um, so just, you know, for fun, I played that for him. And he went nuts. He loved this, you know. And uh, he says, you should get this published. And I said, me? You know, I'm just a student. He goes, no, we'll get this published. So uh, he says, we'll send it out to a publisher, and maybe they'll say no, you know. You send it out to 10 publishers, they may say no. You send it out to the 11th one, and they'll, maybe they'll take it. So we sent it out to Associated Publishers, and they took it right away. Um, and I talked him into um, me writing six more, and so the well-tempered Lennon McCartney was born. Um, it's a little book of seven piano fugues based on themes from the Beatles. Um, and so that was the first time that I mixed two genres together. I mixed Bach and the Beatles together. And it ended up being a pretty unique sounding music. I mean, there's nothing else like that, you know. Um, so he really changed the course of my life by going crazy over my little fugue, my Eleanor Rigby fugue. Um, and it turned my attention in that direction. Right. So you became the king of mashups. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And then you've done some work in, in prisons. Oh, interesting one I thought was the show I did at Stateville Prison. Um, that was uh, through the Illinois Arts Council uh, grant and uh, the um, 
we uh, went into Stateville Prison um, and uh, auditioned inmates to perform in the show. Um, we um, found inmates that had written poetry uh, or had written music songs um, and found inmates that played instruments. Um, you know, so we cast the whole thing in-house, literally. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then so we wrote this show with them. Um, you know, I wrote music to the ones who had written poetry. Um, we used some songs that uh, the inmates had written themselves. Um, and they all performed it for other inmates, uh, all inside the prison. And that was quite an experience. Whenever somebody launches a new work, there's a point where the work doesn't exist, and then they create it, and then you, you have to cast it, and you have to put it all together. Tell me a little bit about the process of going from the idea to your actual premiere of the, of the opera. Well, um, luckily, um, I, I have uh, some of my friends are extremely good, accomplished professional opera singers. Uh, Todd Donovan um, has uh, played lead roles for St. Pete Opera um, and all over the country, really. Uh, he recently appeared in South Pacific as Emile Debeck, um, and he was my Dr. Dillegaff. Um, and Melissa Meisner also, the same thing, uh, has done a lot of leads for St. Pete Opera as well as uh, directing for them. Um, and the two of them um, played the leads in my show and um, is lucky to have a, um, a relationship with them. They came over long before uh, Creative Pinellas was aware of the project and sang on my demo, I mean, you know, just to help me out. Um, and I was really grateful that I was able to uh, bring it to the stage and um, and employ them, um, and, you know, pay them back a little bit for everything they've done for the development of the work. Um, but once um, once I got the grant, um, you know, it was a, a busy summer, you know, because um, now I was uh, obligated to get this on the stage and uh, and present it in a uh, in a manner that is professional and that I'm happy with. Um, so. Um, my attention turned from um, the creation of it and the fine-tuning of it to um, rehearsing it, um, finding a cellist, uh, uh, finding a venue. I mean, really, I became producer, you know. I, I started out being author and composer, um, and once the summer began, I had to put those things aside and become producer, make posters, get uh, programs printed, um, um, advertise, um, you know, try to get an audience there. So that consumed the last couple of months before the performance. You uh, posted on the Creative Pinellas website, rapidreturns.org, and you wrote uh, almost uh, on a weekly basis of, of the development of the rehearsal process and how the, the singers, and also they were actors in a sense, because I think opera singers are, are acting as well as mm -hmm. vocalizing. True. Um, and you had a director, and you wrote about that coming together. And, and how did you feel as you watched your work go from a creation that existed in your mind or on the page to a creation that existed on the stage and available for an audience? Well, you know, there's a... Uh... You know, I think the first thing was panic, <laughs> you know, as I, I, I taught on the music and uh, it's difficult, you know. Um, and so I think there was a, a short period of where I went through, I hope they can learn this in time and, you know, um, and, and but, you know, that passed. Uh, 
quickly enough. I, we'd meet again for the second time, and they had done their work, and you know things would fall into place gradually. Um, and uh, the one thing that I, I that would have been good in the rehearsal period would be a little bit more repetition. Um, we the rehearsals were once a week um, with each of the cast members. Um, then we schedule rehearsals with pairings, you know, because everybody sang duets with other people in the cast. Um, and it wasn't until um, three or four days before uh, the performance where we all got together to sing together. But being professionals, you know, um, we did that Friday, we did that Saturday, we did that Sunday, and come Monday, um, things were in good shape. I, you know, it. Uh, I, I was very pleased. And, you know, as a composer, I've you give your music out, um, and then you come to the performance, and sometimes you're disappointed, you know, that uh, it's not what you had hoped, um, it's not what you heard in your, your head, um, for one of many reasons, whether it's the performance or whether, you know, I, I didn't write it, um, I was hearing something that I didn't actually put down on the paper. Um, but um, there are also uh, situations where um, the performance exceeds anything that I had dreamed of. Finding humor uh, in the way they delivered the line that I didn't even realize the humor was in that line, you know, um, just finding a way to deliver that to the, uh, the other actor um, to, to show their inner attitude in, in, a, in a way that was so personal and really rewarding to watch. I'm so grateful to Creative Pinellas for giving me the opportunity um, to see this on the stage and to do it in front of an audience. Um, as a performance art, um, opera requires an audience. It's written for an audience. It's written for a group of people to see once. Um, I mean, maybe they'll see it again in four or five years in a, in a different venue or something, but it's not, you know, you see it once now as a composer and the author, I can never do that. I can never see it for the first time. Um, I'm there from the first note, the first word, until it grows into something that's an hour long. And I know it's coming next. Um, and nothing is a surprise to me. So um, it was enlightening and, and essential, you know, to, to go through this step, to have an audience react to it. The audience was gracious enough to stay afterwards. Um, we had a, a short talk back discussion. Um, where they could ask questions, and uh, we asked them a few questions, and uh, it was all very enlightening. Um, so thank you, Creative Pinellas. Oh, you're very welcome for that. I loved what you said about being in the audience, because I find, I, I write plays, and I find how it sounds in my head is one way, which mm -hmm. you said, and then how it sounds in rehearsal is, that's all work. You're just working, working, working. And then sitting in the audience, the experience of experiencing the audience experience of it, yeah. I mean, now that's, you know, three or four dimensions out. You're watching the work, you're experiencing it as an author, but you're also experiencing it as part of the audience and responding to what they respond to. And that, to me, is the most high experience that uh, creative performance works could have. Yeah, I mean, you could sense things. Uh, there were times on Monday night where I could sense the quiet in the audience, you know, where no one was rustling, no one was moving, you know, that I, I could tell that they were tuned in at that moment, that uh, that particular moment was working. And, of course, laughter is nothing like laughter, you know. So you also had 
had the benefit of having a talk back after. Was there anything that you took away in particular from that talk back that was valuable to you? Uh, well, you know, everybody seemed to agree it was funny. And uh, uh, that's good. I'm, I'm happy about that. It's intended to be a comedy. Uh, a couple of people obviously gave some thought to what happened, you know, based on the, their question, you know. Um, and that's good, you know, because there are ambiguities um, in, in the, the show, uh, intentional ambiguities. Um, and uh, I want the audience to question, you know. The one thing that I did not hear anyone say is that it made them feel. And so if there's one thing I took away from it, it, it was that. Um, and it's not that anybody should cry. It's not that kind of a show that, you know. Um, but I, I, as I'm going into the rewrite, um, that's one thing I want to bring out. I, I want to try to emphasize the love story a little bit more and make it a little bit more human and accessible um, and more central to uh, what's going on. That would be my, my goal. So I was going to ask you what's next, and it sounds like the next step in what's next is rewrite. And then where do you go with your opera? Well, um, I, I was able to uh, videotape uh, the performance. Uh, and whereas there will be a rewrite, um, that doesn't mean that everything is going to be changed. You know, um, as I said, I'm trying to uh, accentuate this and that um, and um, cut out this and that, you know, which I now consider um, not dead weight, but just uh, um, maybe treading water a little bit. Let's get let's get on with it. Um, and uh, so with that videotape, I can um, use that to market the show. It's hard to I've never marketed a, an opera before. And, and I've, I've had seven or eight or nine musicals performed, and, and I have an idea on how to market that, you know. And uh, it's easier because you, you send them the opening number, uh, you send them a love song, uh, you send them an up-tempo or a, a group number, and you send them the script. And so on the basis of the four songs and uh, they read the script, they can decide whether they want to see any more of it, and in which case you can send them the full score and what other recordings you might have. Um, but with an opera, um, being all music, um, I mean, I can do that same thing, and I will. I will send them, you know, three or four different um, segments from from the the score. Um, but the rest of it, as you read it in the script, it's it, it's not like reading uh, dialogue, which has a, a natural rhythm to it, and um, you can um, put your own inflection and whatever in your mind to uh, to see how this scene plays. It's, it's more difficult, um, I think, uh, in reading an, a libretto. Um, so having this videotape, um, I think, will be an asset in marketing the show, I hope. Uh, but that would be my, my plan. I have a list of 20 opera companies in, uh, in, across the U.S. that, uh, that do new works. Um, and once I get through with the, the rewrite, um, I will send uh, the libretto and the, um, the segments um, from the Palladium performance to these companies in hopes that somebody will produce it. That's the goal, is to get a real production, you know, mm -hmm. somewhere. Mm -hmm. yeah. So you're here in the St. Pete area? Yes. So you're not in Chicago, you're not in New York. Are are you the only opera... Uh, what what do you call an opera composer? Do you call him an opera composer? Is there a specific name for it? That's good with me, okay. opera composer, sure. So are you the yeah. only composer of operas in Pinellas County? or I don't know. Uh, you know, I... I I propose the possibility that this could be the first opera ever written in Pinellas County. I don't know of another one. Um, so, uh, you know, if anybody knows of another one, let me know and I'll stop saying that. <laughs> I'm proud to live here. I, 
uh, not only do I love St. Petersburg, uh, but I do feel like this this community supports the arts very strongly. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously Creative Pinellas and the St. Pete Arts Alliance are two organizations that uh, directly support uh, local artists, uh, allowing us to create new work uh, and promote our work and present it to the public where it can have an impact. Um, and that's very important. Uh, but beyond that, I think that the general public as well, you know, I mean, we, we were well attended at the Palladium. This is a new work nobody's ever heard of, you know, and we got 60 or 70 people to come see us. Um, and that's indicative also of um, the general level of interest in the population in supporting uh, local art. So um, it's, a, it's a good place to live if you uh, are an artist. Thank you very much for joining me today. You're welcome. Tom Civic. You've been listening to Arts In, the Creative Pinellas podcast, sponsored in part by the Pinellas County Board of County Commissioners, Visit St. Petersburg Clearwater, and the State of Florida Department of Cultural Affairs. Arts In is produced by Matt and Sheila Cowley, our wonderful production team. And you can hear more of their great work and some wonderful conversations with visual, literary, and performing artists at our website, creativepinellas.org. This is Barbara St. Clair. Thank you for listening.